season two of the Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting podcast. You can attend this meeting live on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific Time using the Zoom ID 848-5208-0640, password 061120. For more information about adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, visit adultchildren.org. The following speaker share from M was recorded on November 2nd, 2023. All right. Well, I'm really glad to be here. I am super nervous. Um, I'm doing this differently than I've done before. I've only... um, I've only done one other long share before and I wrote it and I wrote an outline and I practiced it to make sure that it kind of came in on time. And um, I did, I did write an outline, um, but I didn't practice. And um, I just want to be here with you and I don't really want to read. So I'm going to take another deep breath, take a moment uh, for myself to um, just really center, be here, and ask for the perfect things to come through me tonight as guided in uh, by my higher power. All right, my experience, strength, and hope. I guess I just want to start with saying I came into this world excited to be here. And um, that lasted for a long time. And despite all the dysfunction in my family, I came from a very dysfunctional family. Neither of my parents were emotionally available. And it's from their own trauma. I don't have any blame for them. I don't hold them responsible for where I'm at. I recognize the generational trauma. And um, I'll probably touch in on some of that a little bit later. Um, My first day of life, I remember, this may sound weird to some people, but it is my experience. I'll just say back in 2013, I shaved my head baldy bald, shiny. And um, I'd wanted to do that for 20 years and I didn't know why, but my family had said, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And I was like, no, I got to do this thing. I didn't know why, but when I shaved my head bald, I actually went back to my first moment of life. And I remember um, I was born in the late sixties and my mom had her feet in the stirrups and the bright light and probably forceps and definitely drugs. and I remember the doc saying after I was born, hey, I'm going to go out to the lobby and tell father, you know, congratulations about new baby. Because in those days, there were no ultrasounds, so they didn't know if it was going to be a boy or a girl. And I remember going to myself, oh, yeah, I'm going with the doc. And I remember floating along the ceiling to the out following the doctor to the lobby to go tell my dad, congratulations, you have a new baby girl. And I remember watching my dad melt in devastation that I was a girl, not a boy. And so that was really um, the first choice that I made feeling like I wasn't okay. And then in the next week of life, I wasn't real sure I wanted to be here because of that. And I, I shut down immediately. 
I didn't even see my second moment of life until 2016. Um, so that choice of not being okay really flavored my whole entire life. So in certain ways, the trauma and the dysfunction stemmed from a choice that I made based on somebody else's, my father's initial reaction to not being a boy. So um, when I realized that in 2013, I was like, oh my gosh, um, I'm going to be okay now because I know what the problem was and where the problem stemmed from. But I wasn't okay yet. Um, coming back to childhood, that first week of life, my mom called me a lazy baby instead of wondering what might have been going on for me. She didn't, she never wondered that. She just assumed I was lazy and didn't want to eat. I didn't want to nurse. So she, she was a good mom and she tried everything she could. And she, when I wouldn't nurse, she got a, a bottle and she poked a whole bunch of, well, I wouldn't take the bottle. So then she poked a whole bunch of holes in the nipple so that all I had to do was swallow. And that also kind of set a tone for life. She called me a lazy baby. And I guess I believed it in some ways. Um, by the time I got to high school, I had realized that being the smart kid didn't really help me out much. So I didn't really try. I still graduated with a pretty high GPA, but I didn't try. And I, I think that really set the tone for my adult life. Not really wanting to try, not really having a, having a why. I didn't really have a good why. Um, I didn't understand, I didn't understand the world. Um, after my sister was born, she's two and a half years younger than I am. She was early on called the happy baby and I was called the moody baby because my mom wanted to show the babies off to her friends. And when she'd wake me up, I'd scream, say, put me back to bed. I don't want you to show me off to your people when I'm trying to sleep, leave me alone. And my sister on the other hand would be the smiley baby and come out and be happy to be held and be admired by all the people. So, um, all those initial things really did set the tone for my life. And it, it, it left me in a pool of lack of self-esteem. And my parents were decent parents, despite their um, lack of emotional availability. Um, we looked like any normal family in suburbia USA and my mom babysat, kids were at our house all the time. And then she went on to, after we were done with, I guess once my sister hit, at maybe middle school or high school, she went on to become a special ed um, teacher and then ended up in preschool and was a preschool teacher for 36 years. So, and, and had good standing in her religious community and um, all of that, but, looking back, she was super controlling and I never felt like I was okay in her eyes. Um, the week before she died, 
this past June. Um, I got to see that she did see me and that was a gift. So, um, but most of my life, it, I felt like I was um, a, um, I don't know, a star trying to fit into a round hole. And every time I'd try to fit in the round hole, all the branches of the star had to be chopped off to fit in this little hole. And that's how I felt my whole life with trying to comply with what my mom and dad wanted for me. And I say my dad sort of with hesitancy because he came from his own dysfunctional family where he was babied um, by his mother and his aunt to the point where there's pictures of him around, I don't know, three or four with blonde hair. He was born with dark hair and had dark hair the rest of his life. And my conclusion is that they wanted to play dress up with him and treated him like his little, like their little doll. And they made him look like Shirley Temple. So they dyed his hair blonde because he had these beautiful curls. And then they put him in dresses and did things for him. And they babied him his whole life. And then he ended up with my mom and my mom took care of him. And I think part of the reason she died young, she, she died, um, I think five or five weeks before her 80th birthday. And she had told us for years that she didn't want to live much past 80. She didn't see any reason to live past 80. My dad, on the other hand, was like, no, I'm going to live to be 100. And I think part of her reason for not wanting to live past 80 was because she was tired. She'd put dinner on the table every night at, you know, 6 or 6.30. She made sure that the house was clean and organized. She made sure that we were all all of us were fed and clothed and she took on super responsibility, you know? And um, it's funny because my dad's social security is higher than my mom's, even though she was the steady breadwinner for her whole life. Kind of touches in on the societal dysfunction that I'll touch in at a different point later on, but... It's scary to think of how he allowed her to take care of him and didn't have it within him to be a solid masculine role model or make sure the money was handled in our family. And I've noticed that both my sister and I have carried that trait on. Um, neither one of us have been real good at taking care of ourselves. She's done a better job saving than I have. She always did. Um, and we do not speak at this point in time. That's a whole different story. But um, so I came from a family that looked pretty darn normal and relatively healthy by other people's standards, probably by a lot of your standards. Um, and the effects in my system have left me with a life that I'm not super proud of. I'm working on turning that around every day. And I feel um, now for the first time in my life um, that I'm actually a whole human. Um, my, my, um, 
My recovery journey really started when I left home at 18 years old. I left home and I'm like, I'm never coming back to this place. I didn't feel comfortable with my peers. I didn't feel comfortable with any of the circles that I was associated with, whether it be work or friends or religious or family. I didn't feel like I was accepted as who I am anywhere. Maybe parts of me were, you know, and different facets of me were accepted in this circle or that circle or this circle, but I wanted to be whole everywhere not just in this circle or that circle or this aspect and that circle and another aspect and another. So when I went away to college, um, my first year of college, my parents thought I partied the whole year because I left my first year of college with a 1.82 GPA, which based on my abilities is kind of dismal. Um, and like I said, they thought I was partying and I didn't have to party because there was no challenge. I went to Tulane in New Orleans. And at that time, drinking was legal if you were 18. And besides, I partied at home. I had other interests. I didn't have to be the rebel. Like my rebel didn't have to be out in that way. My rebel came out in trying to figure out what the meaning of life was and who I was. And so I stayed up many nights that year of college, playing pinochle with my peers and talking philosophy and trying to figure out the meaning of life. And so that was really kind of the start of my recovery. And um, after that first year of college, oh, my parents were so disappointed and angry. They're like, well, if you wanna go to college, you're on your own now because all my financial aid in the way, nobody had told me that if I got less than a 2.0, my financial aid would go away. Cause if I'd known that, I might've tried. Um, at least to keep it just over the over the hump. But that would have changed the course of my life dramatically. Um, I ended up I ended up dabbling with a few 12 step programs, 19, 20, 21. Um, and I was really searching. I was exploring all kinds of metaphysical and spiritual communities. I attended my first po personal growth seminar. I did Psy Seminars, which is um, a sister program to EST or um, Landmark, or uh, what was the other big one? Oh, Dale Carnegie Seminars. Anyway, so I did all that really young, and I wasn't really in a place to hear the messages of the wisdom that I was getting in those days. But what that did was it planted seeds. And those seeds have germinated and started to come to fruition. Um, my really intense recovery started about nine years ago. Um, I moved out to, well, let me let me back up just a little bit. After college and um, that not working out, I moved out to the Bay Area and I lived out there for four and a half years. And that's where I started dabbling with a lot of searching sort of things. And while I was there, I met the man that became my husband. And what I liked about him, I wasn't physically attracted to him ever. Um, so that wasn't 
the thing for me. The thing with him was that he accepted more of me than anybody else had to that point in my life. And we had common goals and dreams. So that was exciting to me. And then <laughs> we met at a, at a meditation, at an all-day 11-11 meditation group. And, and um, I remember that first day we met standing out in the parking lot for like four or five hours and it rained and I washed my car in the rain. And anyway, so I went on an adventure with him. He had said to me, we ended up wanting both of us separately to, um, to meet with these people in this meditation group more often than once a month, which is what it had been planned for. And we'd both separately gone to the facilitator of that group and said, Hey, we want to do this more often. She put us together and said, well, how about you guys work on that? So we created a spinoff group and we did a radio show. I was a talk radio host for a short while talking about solutions. And so we were kind of on this really nice spiritual path, what I thought. Um, and I later learned that, um, what was going on? It was like, a well, he ended up being like my mother. So my mother was a narcissist. He was exponentially worse than my mother. And my sister has subsequently been exponentially worse than even my ex-husband. Um, so those are kind of like a pattern of narcissism in my life. And, and I fell into the victim triangle, victim, rescuer, persecutor, and I mostly played the victim role, which I have some sadness and shame about. Um, and it is what it is. Um, my ex-husband, after he and we, we married, we were together for 20 years and it started out good and then the power dynamic started shifting. And I ended up giving all my power away to this guy to the point where at the end of our marriage, I felt like I was bound in an eight to 10 inch rubber band ball, suffocating and barely breathing. I was completely volatile. I had no room to move or be myself. Um, he wanted me to wear big baggy clothes. They often had nice materials, but he didn't want anybody to see me. Um, and he wanted the six of us to move through the world as a single unit, kind of like, uh, I don't remember what you call it. What do you call a Marine Corps um, group of people? Anyway, like that, he wanted us to move through the world together and um, never have anything of ourselves. He wanted us to be a unit and always be a we. And I find that kind of funny because at our wedding, we read Cahill Gibran um, on marriage. And in that, yeah. he speaks about the two pillars standing as whole pillars holding up this roof. And yet there was no space in my marriage for me to be me. Um, I remember part of what helped end my marriage was um, was working with a group of women 
So I'm grateful to my sisterhood. Thank you, ladies. Um, nothing personal, man, but it was the women in my life that actually helped me break away from my marriage and stand, begin to stand for myself. Um, one day, one of the women in my circle at that time, and it was the first time I had a circle of women. I was working at a, at a curves for women. And so I was surrounded by women. And I also had had a group of women mothers. There were five of us mothers and together we had 18 kids amongst us and we'd be juggling kids between us. And, um, so I had a bunch of women in my life for the first time ever and having the support of women allowed me to step away. And I, I don't know exactly, it wasn't one thing or another thing that I heard, but there was one moment that really stood out. It was when one of my friends stood up to my husband in a way I didn't know how or know I could. Um, we had agreements. He's 17 years older than I am. And I didn't know that I could renegotiate agreements that we had. We had an agreement that said, if one of us was a no, then the answer was no. And that was how we made decisions raising our four children. And when our girls hit teenagehood and I wanted to expand their boundaries and knew that's what they needed for their healthy growth, he'd say no and I'd feel stuck. And so that's when another one of those black rubber bands would go on me and I'd feel more bound up and shut down because I had no tools to communicate. Um, so anyway, back to my girlfriend, she had invited a bunch of us ladies to go to her cabin in the mountains for a weekend. And my husband said, no, you can't go. And she came over to the house one day and she looked at him and said, why can't Em go? And I don't know exactly what transpired, but she shamed him and I got to go. And so that moment of somebody standing up for me, I don't think I'd ever had that experience before. And maybe in that little gift, which was really a huge gift for me. Thank you, Kathy. Um, maybe that was the little thing that gave me the, the power to recognize that this marriage was really unhealthy and I needed to get out. Um, it didn't happen immediately. I think it was probably... I don't know how much later, but sometime in the next couple years or year or two, I don't know exactly when, but somewhere in there, I went away on a trip um, and was going to do soul searching. And I had planned to drive two days there and drive two days back. And the day before I was supposed to leave, my husband said, you can't drive. The car's not in shape for you to drive. And I was like, what? We talked about this. So I planned my, I replanned my trip as angry as I was, we were going to Vegas for my sister's 40th birthday. And I needed the soul searching trip. We were homeschooling our kids. I had no space of my own ever. Um, I mean, I rarely even got to go to the bathroom or take a shower without somebody pounding on the door or walking in. Um, I did learn to lock the door, but um, that took a little while. But to get pounded on almost always, I didn't have five minutes by myself. So I had really needed that soul searching trip. And I, I ended up um, 
planning my trip. So I had one day in Vegas for soul searching. I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to soul search in Vegas. This is like the opposite place that I would think of for soul searching. But it was an interesting trip because I hadn't spent any time with my family in almost 20 years without at least one of my kids or my husband. And that trip, it was just me and the family. So even though it was my sister's 40th birthday, I hijacked her party because they were all happy to see me because they hadn't had that opportunity. And I laughed because I actually really needed that attention and love and acceptance from the family. And I feel sad because I didn't want to hijack my sister's birthday. I wanted it to be her celebration. But anyway, on that trip, I um, I got to... Uh, I got to, I got, I had a soul searching partner after the whole family left and I'd been kind of doted on and wined and dined. The family left and I was like, okay, what am I going to do with my 24 hours? And I looked around the gaming floor as I was walking back to my room, just curious if there was anybody I needed to meet. And there was a guy sitting at one of the tables that my cousin had been playing blackjack at that weekend. And he and I locked eyes and I was like, oh. you know, I had a gasp of breath, super attracted to this man. And um, he invited me to come talk to him. And he ended up being my soul searching partner because what he asked me was, how are you going to step your life up to the next level? And so I didn't have any answers that weekend. I was in no place for answers, but I was able to um, reflect. And when I got home, my husband looked at me and he goes, what happened in Vegas? I said, I met an interesting man. And the first thing he said is, did you have sex with him? And I said, no. He said, did you want to? I said, yes. And in that, um, I realized that I hadn't had any sexual chemistry with him. And that that was something that I wanted and needed in my life. And I asked him for an open marriage. And so that was a bold thing for me to do. It wasn't a particularly common thing at that point in time. Um, anyway, his immediate response was no. And then he said, wait, wait, let me think about it for a little while. So I don't know, five or six weeks later, he comes back and he said, no part of me wants an open marriage. I said, I want a divorce. So after divorce, I went pretty wild. And then um, about nine years ago, I found out my oldest daughter was pregnant. And when I found out my oldest daughter was pregnant, she and I had been estranged for about three years at that point. I ended up kicking her out and my husband left within about two months of each other. And that created an alliance between them, an accidental alliance, I call it, um, which has caused its own set of unhealthy problems for them and for the family as a whole. But I don't have any control over that. Um, anyway, I, I decided that I needed to rebuild my relationship with my daughter because we were, we're going to have a new generation of life in our family. And I wanted to bridge that gap. And I had, she was living, we were living in different States and I had been the one that maintained a home for my other children after divorce. My husband was traveling a lot and he was taking the kids with him because I had told him that I needed some space to begin to breathe again. 
And in that first choice of sending the kids with him, I created a break with my kids, an unintentional break, because I created abandonment that I didn't know I was creating for them. And I did that again when I decided to move out to California where my oldest daughter was when she was pregnant. And so I've created a lot of rifts with my children and I'd done a lot of, I, I created rifts through those choices. And then I'd moved to California and when I was there to rebuild the relationship with my daughter, I was like, well, what am I gonna do with my time? And I ended up in a life coaching program and started doing very deep internal work. And that is where I first began the parts work and looking at all my parts. And that, there were two things that happened. That The coaching program that I in, was in um, was about, it was a somatic practice called orgasmic meditation. And for me, it was a practice of learning to listen from the inside out. And I knew who I was and I knew how I was living and the gap was so huge. I had no idea how to bridge that gap. Like, how do I get to the person I know myself to be when I'm here? And that practice allowed me to land back in my body by learning to listen, to feel from the inside out. And I, I began to meditate and focus in on sensations in my body. And I would feel, maybe I would feel warm honey dripping down my right cheek or a big hot metal rod stuck in my left leg or um, a, a wave of energy moving from my abdomen up to my throat or whatever it was. There were a million sensations that happened in that two-year period of time that I was deeply involved with that. Um, and that really taught me how to feel again. And so I learned to feel. First, it was just the somatic body. And then, and then I noticed that I actually, I lived my life numb. But I noticed in that practice that all of a sudden I was starting to feel feelings. I was like, oh, I'm feeling something. And that was a brand new experience for me. Um, I didn't feel a minutia of feelings at the beginning. It was just feeling something. And then pretty soon I was able, you know, months went by and I was able to begin to feel positive and negative feelings. And then from positive and negative feelings, then I slowly began to feel the minutia of feelings. And so beginning to feel is really the thing that I feel is landing me in my body. But what I want to say about that is it wasn't enough. And I really feel that the thing that has helped me beyond that, even though the seeds were planted for personal growth, I don't know, 30 plus years ago, I still was stuck. I was really stuck. And a year and a half ago, I had, no, it was almost, well, a little more than a year and a half ago, almost 
a year and three quarters. I had gotten myself into a situation where, well, let me step back a little further than that. Probably three years ago, um, I had rebuilt relations with all four of my kids. I felt like I was on good terms with my kids. And my second daughter said, hey, mama, I want you to come live nearby so that when I have children, you can be nearby because I want extended family. And I was like, Whoa, I've done it. that's my legacy. I'm, I'm good. I can die tomorrow. And then a year and a half ago, everything fell apart. And basically, I screwed up again. And I made a comment to her based on choices she was making after she got pregnant. Um, I made, I slept and made a real bad comment. I said something about her. I, I thought that the choices she was making were coming from fear. And from that, um, from that, how could she be a good mother if she was bringing her child into fear? And I have sadness and shame about that. And honestly, I just found that out two days ago. She didn't talk to me for over a year and a half, and neither did my other two girls. Only my son maintained a, a, a thread of connection with me. So it's been a really rough few years. Um, I would say that the hardest phase of parenting is that of adult children. And I guess we're all adult children. And the hardest thing for me has been learning to reparent myself. And the thing I realized a year and a half ago after my kids hadn't been talking to me for six months, I was like, I need help and I need it now because I don't know what to do. And that's when I turned to ACA. And when I came into ACA, I was like, okay, I've been doing personal growth or exposed to it for an awful long time in my life. What's the thing? What's the biggest thing that's holding me back? And I realized that the thing that was holding me back was a relationship to a higher power. I always believed in something, but I never had a relationship with my higher power. And so that's, for me, the thing in this program that's been the biggest turning point for me. And part of what that looks like for me, it looks like prayer and meditation. It also looks like talking to all my inner parts and checking in. One of the things I learned in uh, my coaching program was to learn to honor a yes and a no. And for me, yes is always clean and clear. There's no hesitation with a yes. And with a no, a no can also be clean and clear or it can be any question or any hesitation. So when I look at that in relation to my own self and my relationship to my higher power, if all my parts are in alignment, that's when I know it's a clear yes. If everyone says yes, if there's one part saying no, it's a no for now because that means there's something that needs to be cleaned up, shifted, changed before I can move in that direction. So that's kind of um, kind of like 
how my recovery path has been, what my life has looked like. And now I can say that the gift that my mom gave me before she died was about six months before she died. She looked at me and she said, why don't you go to school and become a pharmacist? And I felt so hurt by that. I was like, how dare she say that? I've been into alternative health and wellness for 30, 30 years, my entire adult life. I, um, I've been called a hippie. I've been called a granola. Um, I know a lot about homeopathics and essential oils and nutrition and acupuncture, chiropractic, energy work, all sorts of alternative sort of things. And so for that to come out of my mom was like, oh my God, same thing, different day. But before she died, I had a moment with her in the hospital and we watched a 2020 special and there was, um, it was about this group of people, a nonprofit in Africa, and they were bringing nature back to life in Africa, including the girls. And the girls in that tribe were being married off somewhere between 11 and 13. And so in this, this nonprofit created a school to educate the young women so that they had new choices in their life. And my mom looked at me that night and she said, you'd be really good at that. And that was the biggest gift I think my mom could have ever given me is to be seen and recognized as a teacher. She was a teacher. My grandfather was a rabbi. He was a teacher. And so that's part of my lineage and also really what nurtures my heart and soul in some way. Um, what else does my life look like now? Well, I mentioned that my second daughter actually told me what happened almost two years ago now, why she stopped talking to me. It's taken until now. She started talking to me again um, shortly, well, when my mom got really sick. She didn't really start talking to me, but she allowed me to meet my granddaughter who was over a year old at that point. So that was a huge step. I got to meet my granddaughter. I had been able to have her crawl up on my lap. Gotten to see her smile and play, gotten to play with her. Um, but having this conversation with my daughter the other day was really magical. So that's one of the signs of recovery for me. Um, my other two daughters have also started talking to me again. My oldest, not quite as much. As, well, none of them as much as I'd like. I have to be honest about that. But all of them have started in its baby steps. And I'm grateful for the baby steps. Um, it's It's a practice and a process. And I think the more that they see me growing and taking responsibility for my thoughts, feelings, and actions, actually, let me rephrase that because I don't have control of my thoughts and I don't have control of my feelings, but it's what I do with them and how I, how I perceive them, how I um, take responsibility for them. Um, I think, I think um, probably the biggest sign of 
recovery for me is a new relationship. I have communication and connection in a way that I've never had with anybody on the planet. I have somebody I can do this work with and I am honored and scared and um, I'm grateful and I get to see my reflection in them in ways that I don't necessarily like all the time. <laughs> and um, it's okay, because I get to look at that and say, oh, there's one I got to do a little differently. And I get to see where my addictions show up and how they show up in the sneaky, subtle ways that, like, that they like to do. I don't know about you guys, but my, my addictions aren't always super obvious. Um, the emotional addictions, even the physical, sexual things are not always obvious. I was noticing um, recently my addiction to excitement. So I said it's a new relationship, so uh, I want more. I want more. I get hungry, and I'm like, ah, more. And then it's like, wait a minute, what about? the other parts of me that need something else besides one flavor, you know? And, and so I'm, I'm learning to acknowledge all of those things. Well, maybe not all at once, maybe just a little tiny bit at a time. And, and I'm grateful for that. Thank you. My, my timer actually says I have less than four minutes. <laughs> um, Thank you. I got the time. Um, I think I think the biggest tool for me is continual check-in with myself and all my parts. How does it feel in my body? Is it really a yes? And if it's not a yes, who needs some attention? And what's there? What 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 does that part need? Who's talking to me? Sometimes I don't get clear on what the part is, but I get a way through. And that's interesting, too. I get to find ways of navigating creatively because it's not black and white. It's not a clear path for me. It's very random and yet clear in that yes, no inside of me. And that's really the way my higher power speaks to me and how I can listen. So I think I'm gonna end there. Oh wait, I, I have one little thing. I was gonna, I when I was practicing and writing my little outline the other night, um, I write a lot and I wanted to share a poem with you all. And I'm not sure which poem to, to, um, to read. Oh, I'm going to read this one. Here we go. The Balance of Somebody and Nobody. This was written in September of 2019. When I allow my ideas of what should be, when I allow who they think I should be, when I allow who I think I should be, when I allow the old stories to all fall away, I become nobody. Nobody allows me to be fully present in the moment. In full presence, I move slowly enough to hear the little whisper. 
I grasp and say yes to the moment and become somebody, becoming nobody to become somebody. All right, y'all, that's what I've got.